Back in 1989, a book came out that you've probably heard of. It was called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, written by Stephen uh, Covey. And it's a really, really good book. If you're a reader and you like reading business stuff or anything like that, as in fact, I would say this is actually uh, more of a personal growth book than a business book. But anyways, this book sold like 25 million copies, at least that's what the cover tells me. And, and what's revolutionary about the book is that nothing in it, like when you read it, is really that revolutionary. Like you read it and go, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's just kind of how life is. And one of the principles in Stephen Covey's book is the second habit, actually, I think it's the second, is called begin with the end in mind. That's one of the habits of highly effective people. And begin with the end in mind, is, this is the principle. It says, begin with the end in mind is based on imagination, the ability to envision in your mind what you cannot at present see with your eyes. It means to begin each day, task, or project with a clear vision of your desired direction and destination, and then continue by flexing your proactive muscles to make things happen. Another preacher would kind of summarize like a kind of similar quote when he would say, your direction, not your intention, determines your destination. So you best figure out where you wanna go and ask if your life is pointing there. Well, in today's sermon, in today's text, Peter is gonna really kind of begin with the end in mind. He's gonna ask us to kind of think about the end and then let that shape how we live today. In fact, that's our main point. How you think about the future, how you think about where this is all going, how you think about your final destination in life is gonna shape how you live today. At least it should shape how you live today. So, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, or your phone, or whatever you use, turn with me to 1 Peter 4. We'll be looking at the first 11 verses together. So hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, 
Let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, your word brings light and understanding to people who are often confused and need direction for how to walk in the world they live. God, would, would your word be pressed upon our hearts by your spirit in, in Jesus' name, amen. So this text divides pretty easily into two parts in We'll have a two-part sermon today. Congratulations, it might be shorter. Maybe not. Um, The first point today is how we live. Because what this text is kind of giving us insight for is is how to live in light of the end. So in light of what we know about the end, it's going to shape how we live. And Peter, throughout this book, over and over and over again, in fact, we're not done with this topic. I hate to break it to you. Peter brings up suffering. Last chapter, we talked about Christ suffering for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And Peter gave a reminder last week that that Christ is victorious, that he's victorious over Satan, sin, and death, that he's actually victorious over all things, all evil, and right now he is ruling and reigning And so with that perspective, Peter now steps back into suffering, in the suffering of Christ yet again. And this time, he's using it to guide how the people of God live in this world. How do we live as exiles? And what he tells them, right in verse one, is therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same understanding. Now, when it says flesh here, what it means is in his earthly life. Since Christ suffered in his earthly life, you should arm yourselves with the same understanding. See, Peter is is giving the people a new mindset. He's already told us that we're exiles, and now what he's saying is that we should expect to suffer. And we forget, and I'm I'm here to remind you yet again this week, that suffering is to be expected Suffering is to be expected in a broken world, and suffering is to be expected if you're a Christian. Martin Luther said this. He said, they gave our master a crown of thorns. Why do we hope for a crown of roses? Right? So this is what Peter is saying. Hey, Jesus suffered. He suffered in the flesh. He suffered and died. Don't think that it's going to be easy necessarily for you. So the new mindset that we are to adopt is one that expects suffering. Not one that pushes it away, but one that just expects it to happen. Now, let me be clear. This doesn't mean we want it to happen. Like no one really wants to suffer. Anyone want to suffer? No one raise your hand. Um, That'd be weird. But this is to say that God uses our suffering for our good because he is a good and kind God. And it is being used for your good, whatever you're facing. How so? Why is suffering in the Christian life good for us? 
Well, the scholars kind of point out a couple different reasons in the text. Reason number one is suffering shows you are done with sin. Peter says it point blank. The one who suffers says he is done with sin. Find me someone who is, who is holding on to Jesus in the faith and I will find you someone saying no to sin and yes to God. No to sin in the world around them and yes to Jesus and his ways. Suffering causes us to say no to sin and in saying no to sin will we'll bring suffering but God uses the suffering we have to help us in our walks with him. Titus says this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. See, if you're suffering for your faith, what it's kind of showing forth is that you're willing to say no to sin, that the grace of God has actually appeared to you and has given you salvation so much so that you're willing to say no to sin and suffer for it. Peter goes on to say that your willingness to suffer for faith shows that you're willing to do the will of God. Now, when I say that, some of you might go, the will of God sounds very confusing and like vague and somewhere up there, like I gotta figure it out or unlock it. Well, if you wanna know God's will, I would just say to open up the pages of this book and to live out what's contained in it. If you wanna know what God wants for his people, it's this. So suffering shows that people are, are willing to live according to the teachings of Jesus. In following Jesus means that we're going to have to follow him into the difficulties of life, follow him into struggles with sin, follow him into brokenness in the world around us and follow him into being persecuted or maybe thought different of or thought less than because of what we believe. And Jesus had a laser-like focus on following his Father's will. And what Peter is encouraging us to do this morning is he's encouraging us to have the same mindset of Jesus, to expect suffering and to focus ahead. Suffering shows you're done with sin. But the other thing that suffering reminds us is that God will judge the living and the dead. Look at verses four to six. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. Peter's reminding the people of God that they are in fact the people of God and that the people of God are people who've placed their faith in Jesus. There's all this talk about what Gentiles do. And in, back in this time, Gentiles were people who lived outside of the people of God. See, in the Old Testament, at least, um, we know that Israel were the people of God, and then the Gentiles were everyone else, right? All the other nations of the earth. Well, in the New Testament, the people of God kind of get defined anew and expanded, and that includes um, ethnic Israel and people who have faith in Jesus Christ. So the people of God are people who have faith. And what 
Peter is saying is that if you have faith in Jesus, you belong to him. And that he is reminding them that faith in Jesus means you also have exiled status, this theme that keeps coming up. And that people are going to ridicule you for following Jesus and not to be surprised by it. We live in a culture that increasingly does not understand why we don't participate in certain things. We believe a faith that's backwards, it's passe, it's irrelevant anymore, it was for a time before us, they might say. We live in a culture that's focused on autonomy, where I can do whatever I want with, with who I am. And what Christians believe is that actually we can't, that we've been bought with the price, that we belong to Jesus and are committed to him. Modern therapeutic culture would say that comfort is our ultimate goal. And for the Christian, we say that comfort isn't our ultimate goal and there's only so much comfort one can expect in a broken world. And this will lead, friends, to people slandering us. And the text tells us not to be surprised by it. Shai Lin is, is a is a rapper, he's also a pastor. And before he was a Christian, um, I was told he, he used to go on tour with um, all these people and there was someone that would tour with them. And they noticed that this person, like, you know, this is band culture, right? Where, where people are, are drinking and getting high and all that stuff. They noticed this one particular person wouldn't do those things. They wouldn't jump in and participate. Um, who was on their setup crew or something like that. And Shailin said, we used to mock them because they were like, they didn't participate in any of the things we did. So we used to push them down and like ridicule them and mock them. And then Shailin realized that this person was a believer. <laughs> we're gonna get mocked for what we believe. And there's something within us and it's kind of this inward desire of belonging that wants to fit in. And there was even like a whole movement of Christianity at one point that said, we gotta kind of do whatever we can not to ruffle feathers. We, we gotta, gotta do whatever we can not to offend anybody. We gotta put on relevant Christianity. And like, friends, I just wanna tell you that the message of the Bible sometimes is that, listen, being a Christian is gonna make things awkward in the world. And I'm not saying we should go out and like try to offend people and, and try to like, make people angry with us. I'm just saying that following Jesus in his ways, according to scripture, is gonna get you looked at kind of funny from the outside world and that we shouldn't be surprised by. I mean, the message of the gospel is an offense. It says that we are sinners who've offended a holy, just God and need someone from outside of us to save us. And then Peter begins to lean into judgment. And he says, listen, you're gonna get mocked, but everyone's gonna have to give an account because God stands ready to judge the living and the dead. And friends, that future, that end should help us shape the way we live. It, like knowing that we have a God who is going to judge the living and the dead should shape how we live right? Knowing that end should shape how we live and it should shape how we interact with the world around us. There's going to be real judgment and we fight sin 
knowing that God will judge the living and the dead, and he's already judged us in Christ as forgiven. Peter says this, and it's where he gets kind of weird. Um, For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's. What does that mean? Why does Peter keep talking about preaching the gospel to dead people? I don't know why he put it this way, but basically what he's saying that um, God judges the living and the dead, and God will protect those who have faith in him. Those people who are now dead were people that believed in the gospel before they died, and then though they were judged by the world, they've been judged, approved by God. So let me boil that down for us this morning. The great hope of the Christian friends is that though we may be slandered for what we believe and that though people might not understand us, because we know judgment is coming and because we know that those who have faith in Jesus are approved by God and are welcomed into his family, we can stand confident that Christ will hold on to us even after we die. I'm quoting a lot of reformers today. I don't know what was with me this week, but John Calvin um, said this, and I think this is beautiful. He said this about this passage. He says, we see death does not hinder Christ from being always our defender. It is a remarkable consolation to the godly that death itself brings no loss to their salvation. Even if Christ does not appear as deliverer in this life, yet his redemption is not void or without offer for his power extends even to the dead. So that though you are accused and though though Christ didn't seem to defend you when you were alive, his power extends even to the dead. He will be your final defender, friend. And because that's our end, if we're living with the end in mind, we're gonna place our hope in that day and let that shape how we live. He holds you in death and we live denying sin and following after God's will. So I would just ask you, is there a place in your life that you're not fighting sin? That you stop saying no to ungodliness? Well, this is an invitation then to repent and to bring that before the God who loves you and let the work of Christ seep into your heart. You're a follower and following is difficult, but he gives grace. And then he also gives his people. So living with the end is gonna shape how we live. Living with the end in mind is gonna shape how we relate, which is their second point, how we relate. Peter moves from judgment that we just read to this statement in verse seven. The end of all things is near. Now, maybe it's my callous, wicked heart sometimes. When I read these things, sometimes my immediate reaction is like, really, it's soon? Doesn't seem like it's soon. Doesn't seem like it's soon. Or I begin thinking of like um, TV preachers with charts and graphs about when the, when the world's gonna end and all of that stuff. But anyways, sometimes it doesn't feel like the end is near. But this is the perspective of the Christian that we are living in the last days, the last stages of redemption. 
that, that all of history up to the time of Jesus was waiting for him to be revealed, right? Like all of that Old Testament stuff is waiting for the Messiah. When is he coming? When is our deliverer gonna show up? And then he does show up. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father like Peter talked about. And now this last stage of redemption is just like, hey, Jesus is gonna come back. It's soon. And we're living in that last stage. I don't know when it's gonna be, but this is the last part. And so that's gotta shape how we live and relate to other people. And then he gives God's people directives in this text for how they're to go about their life together. And if Peter was here today, I think he would say these same things. And here's what he says. First thing Peter mentions. In light of the fact that the end is near, that we're living in this last stages, however long that chooses to be, or God chooses to make it, he said this. First thing we gotta do is pray. He says, continue on in prayer. Be alert, sober-minded, for prayer. Karen Jobes, whose commentary was super helpful, says that, that this is the first resource for living out Christ's victory in Christian community. The first resource is prayer. And remember where you've been. You've been brought from death to life by the work of Christ. You have been brought near to God. And we live out that victory. We live out that nearness by talking with him by talking with him, with other people. That the mark of a church or a person abiding with God is the way that they are relating to him with prayer. And if you're listening to this and you're like, you start to just feel guilty, like, and Satan's also there, like, you should pray more. You don't pray enough. Or, you're starting to feel like condemning yourself. Like, I know my prayer life isn't what it should be. I pray kind of rushed and um, all that stuff. I don't want you to hear this as condemnation right now. I want you to hear this as invitation. I want you to hear this as an invitation from God that he's inviting you to just step into his presence. Step into his presence and pray. So here's what this could look like. Find regular times to pray. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And find times to pray together. You know, like it's, it's often that we find ourselves in conversations with people and they like share something going on in their lives. Hey, I just want to encourage you. Like it might be weird and awkward just to say, hey, can we pray about that right now? And I've not met a single Christian who would say no or a person who wouldn't be blessed by it. So I would encourage you, like, pray. You know, one of the things you may have noticed is that we stopped having, like, after-service prayer up here because I don't want prayer to be this segmented part of our lives. I think prayer needs to be kind of ingrained in the everyday conversations that we're having with our friends and our family and, and with people in our church and in our missional communities. So, so the reason we don't do that is because we recognize people are doing life together and if people are doing life together and having conversations out there and someone brings something up, I want you to just to stop and say, hey, can we pray? Because we believe that God is in the room. He is with us and he wants us to bring our request before him and he gives us this community to help us hold on to him. So it is like air for the Christian, right? 
Family member stressed? Having a rough day? School? Work? Home with kids? And just pray? Doesn't have to be long. Keep it short. They'll appreciate that too. So I'd encourage us, friends, like to be this kind of people that believes that God is here and that he's with us and that we have a role to play in helping one another hold on to Jesus and bringing one another before him. So let's be a praying church. Is how we live out that victory Jesus won for us. Second thing he says is to maintain love. He says, he says it right there. Maintain constant love for one another for love covers a multitude of sins. That's the reason. We're invited to be a church that doesn't gloss over sin, but a community that fights for one another. That if we're living with the end in mind, this is what we're going to do. We're going to fight for each other. We're not going to just push one another aside. We're going to pursue one another. Christina Edmondson says this, how much grace you give lets others know how much grace you think you need. How much grace you give lets others know how much grace you think you need. And listen, friends, I'm a broken pastor. And you're broken people. And we follow a perfect Savior. We need to give each other lots and lots of grace. We're going to offend one another from time to time. I may say something that may upset you from time to time. Someone else might say something that rubs you the wrong way. And unfortunately, we live in the kind of world that, that just doesn't handle that well. We either like retreat from those sorts of relationships or, or we start talking smack about them or we just run away, whatever it might be. But we, the church, are not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to maintain love for one another. The beautiful picture Jesus wants to paint of his church is people that fight for each other, that forgive each other, that give grace to each other because we know we need that grace. It'd be a church that pursues understanding and peace. We're urged to love one another, to maintain it. So friends, let's maintain that. Let's not run away from difficult conversations. Let's not gloss over sin. Let's, let's be the kind of people that fight for one another because it helps us hold on to Jesus. The, the third thing he says is to be hospitable. And I think it's hilarious that Peter says, be hospitable and do this without complaining. Because um, have you ever complained about house guests before? <laughs> I have. Um, I've done that plenty of times. But, but Peter says that a mark of the Christian community, what we need to do in light of the end coming, in light of the suffering that, that we receive is to be hospitable people. There'll be people that open up our homes and our tables and invite one another into our lives. This means that people are gonna see our mess, but that's okay if we're maintaining love for one another. Paul says this in Romans. He says, therefore, welcome one another just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. Welcome one another. Jesus said, come to me who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Jesus sees us and knows us and invites us close. He welcomes us to him. He sets a table before us 
in the presence of our enemies. He welcomes us in as family. And that's the picture of Christ's church in the middle of suffering. It's this family that maintains love for each other. Nicole and I have been blessed over the years by the hospitality of others, whether it's like people giving us their homes for seasons of time to to other people like professors in college that let me live in their house uh, for a season and just countless meals around tables, all of which were small things, some big things too, that God used to help us in our walks with Jesus. Let's welcome others as Christ welcomed us. Fourth and last, he calls us to serve. He says we're all given gifts. Friends, we need each other. We need to maintain love for each other. We need to fight for one another. We need to be hospitable. We need to pray with one another. And then we need to serve each other. If we're gonna make it to the ends, friends, if we're gonna live in light of the end, we're gonna need to use our gifts. And here's the thing, you all have been gifted with gifts. Some of you, some of you serve well, some of you speak words of encouragement, some of you have musical talent, but all of you have been given gifts, things that God just gave you that you just do well. Um, and, and Peter urges, hey, use it to serve other people. What is, you don't need a program to do that. You don't need a special, like, you know, the service people don't need the service program over here. We don't need another program for, for this other way of serving. We need people who live as servants in the world looking to serve one another in relationship. He says, just as each one received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Very, that's a beautiful phrase that God's grace is so varied and complex that he gives each person a gift. This means you belong here and you have something to give. So if you're living in your care home, look for ways to serve others. If you're here at church and you see someone could use a hand, step in and serve them. If you hear of a need and you can serve in that way, serve in that way. If you see someone's down and your gift is encouragement and you just want to speak words of life and it might make you feel weird, speak words of life. We have several areas in our church now that would love to see more people step in and serve. From our ROG Kids, which runs a great program, to Good Uplifting Times, which serves a meal. Um, these are two areas. If you don't know where, just start. Friends, the end of this passage, and as I bring this to a conclusion, Peter ends with giving glory to God. Because that's what all of this is about. And we're reminded that the end for the Christian is a victorious life in Jesus, where our defender defends us fully and finally. We're reminded that we get God now and that we are going towards him that we are in this last stages, however long it lasts, and that Jesus will take us home. And if we are supposed to say no to sin in the meantime, and we're supposed to relate to one another in a way that gives life and gives grace. How you think about the future will shape how you live in the present.